Good morning, Live Church Livonia, and welcome. If this is your first time here, I just want to say we're so glad you're here. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Welcome to week one of our new series, Love by Design. It's so funny, isn't it? In our modern age, we think of ourselves as so advanced, right? We know how microwaves are designed to work, and it's amazing we've been able to take this radiation and uh, use it to heat our food. We know how cars work and understand how they're designed. We have people who build them, drive, we drive them every day. We've used explosions to propel ourselves hundreds of miles an hour, faster than any biological animal. We understand how planes work. We can defy gravity and glide across wind currents. We understand how our iPhones work, and we uh, know how to use them to communicate across the globe in an instance, yet we still don't understand how marriage and sex and intimacy are designed to work, even though they're so much more central and essential to human life. These three realities are easy to get wrong and can be very hard to get right. But God doesn't want us to get these wrong. He wants uh, us to get these things right. Our heart behind this series is to look at God's design for marriage, for sex, and for intimacy and go, okay, how did God design these things to work and how did he design you and I to live in them? Uh, my wonderful wife Amber and I have been married for almost 10 years, not quite. We have a beautiful daughter named Sophia, who's a year and a half old. And I still remember uh, when I decided that I, I wanted to marry Amber and, and I wanted to talk to my parents about it. I specifically wanted to know what my dad was gonna think. I don't know why it's specifically him in my mind, but anyway, I came home from uh, college one day on a break or something like that. And he's out on the back deck and he's spending time with the Lord, reading his Bible, drinking his cup of coffee. And I walk out there, and I'm feeling a little nervous, you know. And he starts asking me, how's life going? How's school? Yeah, good, good. How's your relationship with Amber? Well, funny you bring that up, Dad. Actually, uh, I think I'd like to ask her to marry me. What do you think about that? Silence. <laughs> and after a long pause, he just keeps like looking off into the distance. After a long pause, he goes, marriage is a school of forgiveness and it's the fires of sanctification. Don't let anybody else tell you something different. And I went, so you're good with it? <laughs> like, is that, is that a yes? Is that, are you okay with it? You don't have any concerns, right? I didn't know what he meant then, um, but I did know he was trying to communicate how important this commitment was. Now, I recognize all of us here uh, are, have different relationships with marriage, pun intended, thank you very much. We have different relationships with marriage. For some of us, um, our parents uh, growing up had a really bad marriage, and that scared us. We, we kind of fear the commitment, we fear the process. We have a lot of fear associated with marriage because of our parents' marriage. We know theirs was bad, but we don't know how to make a better one. For others, we're currently in a marriage we simply wish we weren't. Sometimes that's a passing moment, like, oh, God, did I make the right decision? And sometimes it's over days and weeks and even months where we go, man, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. The strain has been there a long time, and we don't know how to make things better. Some of us are single, and we long to be married. We see marriage as a goal or an ideal, and we've been single a lot longer than we thought. And that longing for companionship, for belonging, for something inside of us that needs to be filled, we look to marriage with longing, hoping one day that maybe someone 
will ask us to marry them or we will find the right someone to ask. Some of us are on the opposite end. Uh, we're divorced. And it's still a source of great pain and a source of great sorrow and grief and regret. Some of us are going through divorces right now and it's overwhelming. Some of us see marriage as a social construct, simply that needs to be updated or done away with altogether. It needs to get up with the times. And we have a fantasy of alternative forms of relationships that we would like to explore. Some of us see marriage as a vessel of self-fulfillment. We feel like there's something missing in us and a romantic or sexual relationship will somehow fill or fix that. It'll make us feel wanted, desirable, good, and whole. Some of us are really married, are married and are really enjoying it. And marriage is a gift and we love our spouse and we love the commitment and it's a source of great joy in our lives. Wherever you're at, marriage is what brings us together today. If you don't know that quote, go watch The Princess Bride and do yourself a favor. Regardless of where you are at uh, with your positive or negative experiences with marriage, the question we need to ask is what is the design of marriage? How did God design this thing to work and what do we do about that? Now, I want to give a quick caveat before we jump in. As we talk about the way God designed marriage and sex and intimacy to work, you're probably going to realize uh, there are areas you've done things outside of God's design. You've missed the mark. And that's literally what the Bible means by the word sin. It means God designed something one way and I've done it a different way. I've missed the mark of his design. The natural temptation when we come to an awareness of our sin is often to experience shame and either run away or get defensive and attack. I just want to invite you into a place where you don't have to do either of those responses this morning. The truth is not there to shame us. And the Bible says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The whole world is broken by sin. And just like you and I were born into families that are messed up and we didn't choose that, all of us have been born into the human family and it's messed up. And we didn't necessarily choose that. No one was without sin and most of us have sinned in the area of relationships. And we don't want shame to drive us further down a self-destructive road. So instead of running or fighting shame, I just want to invite us to turn to God's kindness in confession and repentance. Confession and repentance are cornerstone practices of the Christian faith. I wish they were practiced more in the global church. Um, but whenever we live outside of God's design and we acknowledge that, we enter reality. And reality is where we meet God. So I just want to practice a little confession and repentance right now so that uh, we don't have to feel defensive when we start to feel shame, realizing, ooh, I don't think I did this right. And I just want you to say this with me. Father, forgive me for my sin and help me to live in your way. Say that with me again. Father, forgive me for my sin and help me to live in your way. So again, our question today is, what is the design of marriage? Specifically, what's God's design for marriage? I went back and forth in preparing the sermon, whether to give a, a broad, wide view of marriage or whether to really delve down into something specific and go a little bit deeper. And I chose to go um, wide over deep. So if there's any one of the things we talk about today that you go, oh man, that's really resonating with me. I wish I had more information on that. Please let us know via the connection card and we can get you some more information on that. So as we begin to answer our question today, in the words of Julie Andrews, we'll start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the astute amongst you will be thinking, that's not a passage about marriage. That's from the creation narrative in the first book of the Bible. And to that, I would say you're only half right. It is from the creation narrative, absolutely. But a number of years ago, I saw a wonderful interview with a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a famous New Testament scholar who's just got such beautiful insights into scripture. <clears throat> and he was being asked a question in this interview about the culture's changing views on marriage and how they were changing and what he thought about that. And he went back to Genesis 1 and he laid out this observation that in every day of creation, God creates these equal and opposite pairings. Let's take a look. In day one, he creates the heavens and the earth and he creates the light and the dark. On day two, the waters above and the waters below. Day three, the land and the sea, the brush and the trees. Day four, the sun and the moon. Day five, the fish and the birds. Day six, livestock and wild animals. And day seven, men and women. I'm sorry, day six is also men and women. Day seven's rest. So Wright pointed out that every single day of creation, every part of creation is made with a pairing. No part is made in isolation. And in each, uh, each day, two things are made that have equal importance yet opposite functions. Both opposites are required to come together to create a whole that creates life, right? These pairings are what create ecosystems. They're what allow for the planet itself to flourish, including us. In his description, Dr. Wright pointed out that these pairings are marriages. They're these two opposites that come together to create life. And human beings, human marriage is the last pairing, but it's not the only pairing, nor is it the most important. Meaning that marriage wasn't invented by people or for people as a social construct. Marriage is actually the ordering of creation that allows all things to exist and have life. And that includes men and women. This means that marriage is God's idea not our idea. Humans participate in it, but we did not invent it. We don't get to define it, nor do we get to redefine it, nor can we thrive or live without it. It's no more outdated or antiquated or redefinable than the sun and the moon, the light and the dark, the atmosphere, the land, the seas, etc. So what Genesis 1 shows us is that marriage is an ordering of all of creation, not a social human construct. The next thing we see in scripture is that because marriage is not this social construct, though it clearly has social benefits, right? I mean, just simply the statistics alone on uh, kids raised in two-parent households and the benefit of that is, is just unbelievable. Lots of social benefits, not just a social construct. Uh, it's also not a social contract. And here's what I mean by that. We see this in Malachi 2, 13 through 16. Another thing you do, and by the way, Malachi is talking to the Israelites. Uh, the nation of Israel has been living very sinfully. They have a lot of ritual and culture of religion, but they're not practically following God in their lives. And God sends Malachi to convict them of their sin. And this is what he says. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? 
It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. In this passage, like I said, Malachi is speaking this word of rebuke to the Israelites for the way they have treated their marriages. And that's separated them from their relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? And, and I just want to pause here. At this point, some of you might be feeling some conviction, like, oh, shoot, I think I've done this wrong. Again, you don't need to feel shame. Father, forgive me. Help me to live in your way, right? But there are two things here that I want to point out. The first is that, like I said, the separation between men and women, between these marriages, um, and this unfaithfulness in marriage has also broken their relationship with God. Why is that? Well, Genesis 1 says God created people in his image, and God exists in a community we call the Trinity. I wanted to explain all this and show you how in that first two verses of Genesis, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present. But the first not good in Scripture is it's not good that man should be alone. God creates Adam in Genesis 2, and before Eve is created, they look for a suitable helper for him, and none is found. And then God makes Eve out of part of Adam, and now all of a sudden the creation is complete. The reason it wasn't good for Adam to be alone is because if Adam and God are in the relationship and this relationship is meant to mimic the relationship, to image the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, something's missing, isn't it? Right? So when God makes Eve, all of a sudden, Adam, Eve, and God now image the Trinity. Right? It's a reflection of who God is. And without Eve, that doesn't happen. That means that when God presents Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam, the marriage isn't just between Adam and Eve. God is a crucial and core part of their commitment. Their commitment to each other is also a commitment to God, which again affects their relationship with God as their relationship with each other is affected. This leads us to the second part I want to zoom in on. Malachi says that marriage is a covenant. A covenant is distinct from a contract which is the way marriage is seen in a legal sense. In a contract, both sides agree to some terms. If one party doesn't keep their end of the contract, the whole deal is off, and that's sorted out in court with some proceedings, right? Prenuptial agreements are really contracts that are part of the legal contract of marriage. A covenant, on the other hand, is very different. A covenant is a promise that someone makes to another and or to God, and that promise puts their life on the line. In a covenantal promise, We're saying, regardless of what the other person does, I'm going to keep my promise to this person uh, and to God until I die. That's what a covenant is. This is why we say in our wedding vows, till death do us part. God lays out some things that break the marriage covenant, like infidelity and violence, like we see in Malachi 2. But in scripture, we see that marriage is designed to be a covenant, not a contract. It's not a promise we keep because we like that person all the time. It's not a promise we keep uh, simply because we're always happy. It's a promise we keep because it's a promise we've made to God, not just to our spouse. And it's a promise that we're dedicated to keeping until we die. 
And if you're struggling in your marriage and, and that, that idea creates a lot of conflict in you because you're leaning toward divorce or you're in divorce or you've been divorced, and I just want to invite you to talk with us more about that. Uh, the Bible does give <clears throat> allowances for divorce, and even God gets divorced from Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3. You can read that in your Bible. But the Bible's core posture is, as Jesus says, what God has joined together in marriage, let no one separate. Now, the reason marriage is a covenant and not a contract is given to us in Ephesians chapter 5. This is a letter Paul wrote to the ancient Greek city of Ephesus to a group of Christians who were gathering there uh, to worship together. And in this part of the letter, he's speaking to married couples. And Paul says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to your husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is the key part. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This passage is chock full of good stuff, uh, but there are some things I want us to pay attention to specifically here. The reason that Paul gives these commands to husbands and wives is not because of cultural norms. It's not because of arbitrary decisions. It's not about power. Paul is giving these commands to husbands and wives so that their relationship might look like Jesus's relationship with the church, which is what Revelation 21 tells us. That in Revelation 21, Jesus marries his bride that he's engaged to. Again, you know, in ancient uh, Jewish sensibility, you were engaged for a year. You were, still, you were called married, but you hadn't consummated your marriage. You were committed to one another, but that year was a year of preparation. And then you consummated that marriage on your wedding night. So it says that Jesus is essentially engaged to the church in Revelation 21. The wedding ceremony begins. This is why Paul says this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The Greek words there used for profound mystery are the words megas and mysterion, like mega mystery, right? Meaning that he's saying that marriage is the revealing of and itself is this mega mystery that is somehow the sacramental embodiment of the love of God for his church. A sacrament is simply a physical embodiment of a spiritual reality. In the sacrament of communion, we physically embody Jesus' death on the cross by eating the bread and the wine. And in baptism, we physically embody Jesus' resurrection to new life as we rise out of the water. And in marriage, in some mysterious way, we embody God's agape love for the world. In Revelation 21, like I said, we see this marriage supper of the Lamb, <clears throat> and what what the Bible is getting at is that a Christian marriage is meant to be a preview to the movie that is the wedding of God with his love for his people. 
It's meant to be the sample chapter of a book that makes the whole world want to read the book of God's love. That is what marriage is designed to be in the Christian worldview. The Bible describes God's love using this word agape, which is a word that means enduring love, unconditional love, lavish love. It's a love that longs for and works for and sacrifices for the other person's good and flourishing. It's a love that is a commitment and it is a love that requires endurance. The reason that marriage is a covenant where we put our lives on the line and it's not a contract is because God's love for us is a covenant, not a contract. He doesn't leave us the first time we screw up. He's committed to us and he pursues us and he takes us back and he reconciles. We grow together as we become like him. He convicts us. He forgives us. He calls us back to him. Paul is saying that marriage is meant to be an embodiment of that kind of love to a looking and a lost world. The kind of love that would cause Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. The kind of love that makes sick people well and broken people whole. The kind of love that has hard conversations and forgives freely. The kind of love that would go to the cross and die so that we might live. Marriage is meant to be a living, breathing analogy of this kind of love. This is powerful and it's beautiful and it's deeply convicting. What this means is that if someone were to ask our non-Christian friends or neighbors or even our children, and I'm a dad, so if someone were to ask Sophie, you know, when she's able to kind of conceptualize things, hey, what do you think God's love looks like? A Christian marriage is meant to be such a holy embodiment of God's love that Sophie could say, what does God's love look like? Uh, I don't know exactly, but probably something like the way my mom and dad love each other. That's the goal. That's the design, right? That's, that's the whole thing. I don't claim to be getting this right, but it is what we strive for. And here, if, if you're, again, just at a place where you're feeling conviction, I just want you to pray with me, Father, forgive me for my sin and help me to live in your way. This leads us to our final point. Again, the reason that Paul is telling husbands and wives to embody Christ's love for the church is not just to make their marriage look like Jesus, it's to make them look like Jesus. This is what my dad was trying to get at when he said that uh, marriage is the fires of sanctification. Sanctification is a process of becoming like Jesus in the way we live. Another word for this is holiness. All people are created in God's image, but in the Christian journey, we move from simply being made in God's image to being made in God's likeness. That we are people that look like, that act like, that talk like, that move like, that heal like, that pray like, that love like Jesus. In other words, we become holy as Jesus was made holy, or as Jesus was holy. We become different in ways that Jesus was different. So the biblical answer to the question, what's the design of marriage? It's not simply to have a stable place to raise children, although that's certainly a huge benefit and a, a beautiful outcome. Um, like I said, the research on that is incredible. It's not also just for the sake of human happiness and satisfaction. Does marriage make you happy? Absolutely, sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes it's really friggin' hard <laughs> and you don't want to do it. However, in the biblical worldview, marriage is about two broken people working together to become like Jesus in the way that we live and in the way that we love. In other words, 
Marriage is designed to make us holy over happy. So what does that mean for us today? And what do we do about that? Well, if you're married, here's the call. In every argument, in every dirty dish, in every late night, in every busy work season, in every budget conversation, in every trip to soccer practice, in everything. We have to ask the question, how do I become more like Jesus through my marriage by loving my spouse like Jesus? How do I submit to them out of reverence for Christ? How do I humble myself toward them? How do I serve and sacrifice for them? How do I treat them as more important than myself? That's the question. I'm reminded by this beautiful, uh, of this beautiful story. Uh, Pete Schizero wrote an excerpt of it in his Day by Day Emotionally Healthy Relationships book. And it's from the Brothers, uh, um, Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And, and the passage from the book uh, goes like this. This is what Pete writes. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky captures the necessity of making difficult intentional choices if we're to obey this command. He tells the story of a wealthy woman who asks an elderly monk how she can know God exists. And he tells her no explanation or argument can achieve this, only the practice of active love. The monk speaks glowingly of love for God, which comes as a result of love for others. The wealthy woman then confesses that she sometimes dreams about a life of loving a service to others. At such times, she thinks perhaps she'll become a sister of mercy and live in holy poverty and serve the poor. But then it crosses her mind how ungrateful some of the people she'd serve are likely to be. They'd probably complain that the soup she served wasn't hot enough or the bread wasn't fresh enough or the bed was too hard. And she confesses that she couldn't bear such ingratitude. And so her dreams about serving others vanishes. And once again, she finds herself wondering if there is a God. To this, the wise monk responds, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Loving well is the goal of the Christian life. And as the wise monk knew, this is much easier said than done. And it's a lot easier in our imagination than it is in reality. It requires that we grow into spiritual and emotional adulthood in Christ, the rewards of which are beyond measure. Practically for married folks, this could mean instituting a, a rhythm of prayer, Whereas you lay together in bed at night, you share prayer requests and pray over each other. It could mean that you clarify expectations and hopes around splitting up the work of life or of parenting or of taxes or bills. It could mean that you need to learn new conflict skills or engage in a season of counseling. Many of us take classes, go to trainings, do conferences for our jobs. Many of us got four years degrees for our jobs. And yet we never invest time like that in our marriage, right? I, I don't know many people who have a four-year degree in marriage, you know, where you're just going, how do I become good at this? How do I learn everything I can learn? I need to read all these different books. I need to really critically think about this. And so it's, a, you know, I just want to encourage you to intentionally invest in your marriage and get better at it by going on a retreat, doing a marriage treat, go to a marriage conference, visit a counselor to help you work through a sticking point of some kind. Now, some of us here uh, are married and we're considering divorce. Uh, but we're not sure if we should get divorced or not. And if that's you, I really want you to reach out to us so that we can help you discern that and walk together. Uh, you do not have to navigate this alone. So please reach out to us via the digital bulletin, via our connection card there, uh, or come talk to Kate or myself. Some of us, though, are not married. 
Some of us are already divorced and we're trying to figure out how to follow God in this new season. Uh, some of us are single and we long to be married. We've waited and waited, but nothing is happening. Some of us are single and we don't want to be married. We're content either due to life stage or circumstance. So if you find yourself in any of those groups, I just want to say a few things as we close. Throughout history, uh, the church uh, has kind of swip-swapped in which is better, marriage or singleness. You know, in the early church, everyone was like, oh my gosh, Jesus was single, so clearly that's the holier, better choice, right? And for 1,500 years of the church, people saw marriage as kind of a compromise and like singleness was the holy thing to do. Right? But since the Reformation with Martin Luther, it's kind of flipped places where people now go, marriage is so preferential and I feel bad for you if you're single. But neither of those attitudes are, are really a biblical attitude on this. <clears throat> marriage is not the only way of life that is meant to mimic Jesus's relationship with the church. Marriage is designed to be a living, breathing analogy of the depth of God's love for people. And in singleness, we get to embody the breadth of God's love for people. Single people often have more time and capacity for relationships than married folks. And that too is a gift. Now the Bible shows that Jesus never got married, but when I say he was single, I just mean his life on earth, right? Again, in Revelation 21, we see that Jesus marries the church. So whether you're married till death do you part, or you're single till death, all Christians are engaged to Christ. And all Christians are looking forward to our true and real wedding day. Jesus saved himself for his marriage. And so we save ourselves for our marriages, right? That one day we will all be married to Christ as followers of Jesus. Marriage is the analogy. The love of God is the real thing. Marriage is the preview. The love of God's the whole movie. Marriage is the chapter. The love of God's the whole book. So for unmarried people, this may be practically uh, asking the Lord which activities or people or priorities does he want you to invest in this, in this season. It may mean spending time with more people outside of work or having a prayer list for those around you. Um, and, and it may just be praying about what practical next steps are in your situation or part of your situation. And if you need help discerning that again, I just invite you to reach out to us. We want to figure that out with you together. So for unmarried folks, the question is, how do I become more like Jesus in my singleness? By loving those God is calling me to love. Whether you're married or whether you're single, God is calling you to love people in the name of Jesus to embody his love to the world. As we close, one thing I am sure of is that all of us have missed the mark and sinned in the area of relationships. We've all fall, fallen short of God's glory in some way. And our sins separate us from God. They break our relationship with him. This is why Jesus came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for our sins. I want you to know God loves you so much, wants a relationship with you so much, desires to be with you so much, that as our sins separated us from him, Jesus came from heaven to earth to take all of our sins upon his own body and to die on the cross with those sins, putting them to death, and then rising to new life so that you and I might taste this life and life to the full that God designed us for. I don't know about you, but I've done relationships my own way, and guess what? It's the worst. <laughs> it promises something it never delivers. And maybe you're in that boat today. You've done life your way, you've done relationships your way, but that longing, that ache, that hole, that thing in you that says, 
something's missing. There needs to be more. It's not enough, and I don't know what's wrong. What's missing is God. Even if you're a Christian, you may know these things, but they might not have even made it from your head to your heart. God is reaching out to you today with his hands extended, wanting to take your sins upon himself and to fill that hole inside of you that was made for him. Because no human relationship can replace our relationship with God. And all of these things are analogies to the real thing. What you're longing for is the real thing. It's not the analogy. And when we use the good and beautiful gift of marriage outside of its design, it breaks and we break on it. And I know many of us have experienced that. However you've missed the mark in God's design for marriage, the Bible says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God wants to forgive you of your sins and mine. And he wants to draw you to himself in kindness and mercy today. So I want to offer you that option to simply turn to God in his kindness and repent. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive me for my sins and help me to live in your way. Lord, I realize that I have lived very different than your design, and I have felt the fallout of that. Lord, I see how far off I am, not just in my behavior, but in my perspective and in my posture. Lord, I need your love to simply flood me and cleanse me, washing me clean. I need you to make me new, Lord, at the deepest parts of who I am. I need you to change my perspective, my desires, my behaviors, my whole being, Lord. And I just receive your forgiveness and your love for me. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and do a miracle in me. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we close today, <clears throat> I just want to give you a quick heads up. I want to give a disclaimer for next week and our conversation about sex. It's going to be a frank conversation, curt, open, honest. It's not going to be R-rated, but it's certainly going to be PG-13. So parents... If you have not had a conversation with your kids about sex uh, and you don't want them to be a part of this, that's why we're telling you now. And if you know you need to, but you just don't know how, again, reach out to us. We have a lot of parents in our community who have gone before you and done things well and done things poorly and would love to help you figure out how to navigate such a sensitive conversation. So we can't wait to see you next week as we continue uh, by talking about God's design for sex.